Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. You good people. Dr. Jeffrey Kay. Welcome back to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for uh, coming to chat with me today. Excited to, uh, to to go through all this with you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So um, you've been a guest on the podcast, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe just shy of a half dozen times or so now, I mean, I, I, four or five, and we've talked about a whole different range of issues with that. We've talked about the the Korean War and the biological warfare history of, of, of that conflict. Um, we've talked about the um, confessions of American POWs recovered in the Vietnam or not uh, the Korean War and um, how uh, how the mainstream media censored them, how they were tried to be, you know, in, in any way it could to make them seem like they weren't, weren't being forthcoming. Um, and we talked a little bit about this subject, but I'm glad that we're going to get into it more today. You had written about a male censorship program that happened uh, during the Korean War and after um, that it, it went specifically, but not com uh, completely at um, communist anything, anything that they could label as communist propaganda, works by Russian authors. I mean, they're, they're really, I'm, I'm sure it included so much innocuous stuff um but please f fill us in a little bit give us give us a taste of of what this is about and uh, what you you discovered through your research right well i had um been going over uh this was this, i only dis discovered this really uh last year and um i was going over some of my old emails with correspondents uh, who might ask questions uh, scientists in particular about the biological warfare program they were not necessarily in agreement with me but they were corresponding with me and answering some questions and one of them um because i didn't this was kind of an uh, off the record or he didn't know that i was going to use this um i don't identify him but he was a well-known um uh, researcher, scientist who's been uh, his expertise in biological warfare, mentioned to me in passing in a um, email that, of course, Jeff, he wrote, you know, uh, it's, I'm so glad that you want to look at the original documents, you know, and, and the documentation, not just taking anyone's word for things. But of course, the problem is it's so difficult to get those materials because uh, they were destroyed, you know, so many were destroyed. Um, in the 50s, and our archives are just uh, really not that reliable as a result. And then he went on to other matters. And when I first read that, it just, it, I guess it just sailed, sailed right by me. There was so, it, it was not, I knew nothing about it. I wasn't prepared for that information. And I just didn't pay it the attention it deserved. So when I came back to it, um, really, literally, uh, a few years later, 
Um, I said, what is this guy talking about? And so I decided to do some searching around on my own, some research. And lo and behold, I found a 1959 um, major law review article by University of Pennsylvania Law School um, talking about this program, uh, Foreign Communist Propaganda in the Mails was the name of the, uh, of the uh, article. It was very well researched by two guys, a professor at UCLA, another professor at um, uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, Schwartz and Paul. And uh, what Schwartz and Paul documented was a the use of the Foreign Agents um, FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which had been put into place on the eve of World War II, um, aimed at Nazi propaganda being sent into the United States, um, and revitalized it uh, in the um, early days of the Korean War, really around the time the U.S. was suffering battlefield setbacks in late 1950, early 1951, and um, operationalized the Customs Department and the United States Postal Service to uh, intercept and destroy any incoming political propaganda from uh, so-called Iron Curtain countries. So that in those days, that would mean China, the Soviet Union, of course, uh, um, much later, um, in the early 60s, as this program continued, Cuba, um, South Vietnam, and the, of course the East European satellite, so-called satellite countries, um, but, you know, with the Soviet Union. Of course, the uh, political propaganda is a very loose term. What it really meant was anything coming in uh, in print or other or film that was sent in third class or bulk mail which was basically how printed material was sent into the United States from abroad. You know, if you were buying a book from, uh, uh, it doesn't matter where, England or the Soviet Union, you know, how did it get, this is, how did it get into the United States? Sure. This was way before the internet and people who didn't grow up in the days before there was computer distributed information may um, not realize that it literally had to physically enter the country. And when it did, um, anything uh, they did in, in in large uh, parcels, and these parcels were broken down into packages, and the packages themselves would contain materials. And these were intercepted by the Customs Department at the ports of entry, uh, which uh, varied at different times during this program, um, around a dozen or so, East Coast, West Coast, Gulf Coast. And, um, you know, they were, you know, the censors were looking for anything that was political propaganda. And by their own uh, uh, um, description of the program, which was given to congressional committees at a number of different points during the 1950s, they were intercepting millions of packages a month. And, and, and however many millions of um, articles and uh, booklets and pamphlets and film material were confiscated and destroyed. And of course, the, the, the zeal of this program spilled over past that of communist countries. So that after, you know, what brought it finally to the attention of congressional investigators, the press, organizations like ACLU, the American Libraries Association, um, Library of Congress even, which was that um, it, it went overboard. Uh, um, uh, it caused, finally spilled over into the press when uh, this confiscation program um, started confiscating pamphlets and materials from the Quakers, the American Friends Service Committee, because of their pacifism, was political propaganda, because it mentioned, you know, the Soviet Union or whatever, they thought that was it. And, and materials coming from, say, the Soviet Union, it didn't matter if um, 
it, you would think, well, of course, they wanted to censor calls for socialist revolution in the United States or calls to uh, defend North Korea against the American imperialists. And certainly there were those, but they also were, um, you know, they saw scientific material. Well, we don't want, uh, you know, people to think that the Soviet Union has a vibrant uh, space program, for instance, or, or at a legitimate science um, um, enterprise. Breakthroughs of any kind. Well, any breakthroughs, nothing. In fact, um, one of the reasons for those who remember it or have heard about it, that the Soviet launching of the Sputnik satellite, the first space satellite was launched by the Soviet Union, not by the United States, caused a tremendous um, scandal and um, hysteria in the United States. You know, the, how did the Soviets do this? What's going on? But as scientists pointed out, this wasn't a secret project. If in fact the the fact that the Soviets were using, you know, and testing rockets and trying to understand how to put satellites into space was something they were writing about in their own scientific journals. But people in the United States couldn't read those scientific journals because they'd been destroyed upon entry. I mean, and not so. So you had even even in the CIA, you had people, you know, uh, complaining we can't get the materials we need to assess what's happening in the Soviet Union and the Sputnik. Uh, program was a good example of that. It was, um, um, but the program really uh, took off again, as I was saying, during the Korean War. If you leave aside how it operated during World War II, which was kind of a separate issue, uh, um, although the roots of, of, of this began then, because it was a, um, there was never any legislation until the early 60s. That this thing was never approved by Congress. No money was ever allocated for resources um, by legislative fiat for this. They were just doing it. And they, they got the funding, you know, they just took the funds out of the general funds of whatever they had been allocated for operations and shifted things around. But the Attorney General of the United States in 1940 ruled that um, the Foreign Agents Registration Act could determine that a foreign agent could be somebody not just in the United States, but somebody abroad shipping in. If you were, if you shipped a package with a book of Das Kapital from Moscow to the United States, the person who put that book into the envelope then became, by by a ruling of the Attorney General, a um, a foreign agent, an unregistered foreign agent. Now, Faro, of course, has been in the news um, when that uh, what was her name, Butina? Um, that was you know. Uh, Maria, Maria Butina. Uh, Maria Butina was um, supposedly a spy and was prosecuted as violation of being a, an unregistered foreign agent. And this has come up, sometimes people will scream that Fox News or um, currently with uh, everything happening in Ukraine, um, what's his name, Tucker? Uh, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is an unregistered foreign agent of the uh, of Putin and should be prosecuted as such, et cetera. And people, these things fly around. Most disturbingly, of course, and that your listeners will be most um, aware of, is that just in the recent week or so, with the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, um, brought about a response in the West, which included massive um, 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 appeals and the implementation of censorship. You know, uh, calls for banning, and in fact, in Europe, this happened: banning Russian news services, you know, RT, TASS. Um, you know, and uh, and then spreading out to anything that touched this. In fact, uh, um, 
in one European city of performance of Mussorgsky's uh, Boris Budinov, the opera written in 18, you know, whatever, late 19th century, was, was banned and, and, and Russian opera um, was not going to be performed. Or um, there were apparently in Italy, I think it was uh, the works of Dostoevsky were banned, you know, anything that, Russian. Yeah. This is what happens when you start down the road of censorship, of course, and and, the, and you put the censors in control. Even Shakespeare knew this. And if anyone ever uh, wants to read it, you should read his play Measure for Measure, which um, is about um, this kind of thing, which uh, um, so things haven't changed a lot in about 500 years. <laughs> but um, in the Korean War, they were quite specific, and Schwartz and Paul made it clear. I just want to read, I, I don't like to read long things when I'm doing an interview, it's so boring to the listener. But I just want to um, note the connection to the Korean War biological warfare. Um, just a, just a, a one sentence here from the article by Schwartz, where they're describing the kinds of materials that were coming in that uh, this censorship was meant to stop. Uh, varying in style, they write, content and intellectual appeal. There were tracts and magazines containing panegyrics of life in communist countries, extreme criticisms of life in the United States, appeals for peace and peace petitions, accusations and quote, documentary proof, unquote, of United States germ warfare and prisoner of war, quote, atrocities in Asia. So it was quite clear that they, you know, uh, were targeting and in fact, in, in the congressional hearings, you know, they discuss this at, at other times as well. They specifically did not want information about the accusations or the documentary proof of United States use of germ warfare to enter the United States. And it's my contention that the, you know, it was in fact, just by pure timing, the Korean War itself. And in fact, this is what Schwartz and Paul say, it was, it was really the, the, the activities and the crimes of the Korean War that they wanted to keep not from the Koreans, not from the Soviets, but from the American people. And that's what really is happening with censorship. Censorship is meant to, you know, um, stop one's own people from knowing things, not the other side. They've got spies, they've got, you know, whole bureaucracies that are set up to try and understand and, and, and get information from another country. But it's the American people who don't get told the truth. So that's why I'm so grateful to you and others, you know, who are out there trying to, you know, bring alternative viewpoints and alternative documentation about what's going on in the world to, to your listeners. It's so important. Um, this program continued on past the Korean War and um, with the protests of the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers and the scandal around, you know, banning their literature from abroad um, and some other things that occurred, including holding up uh, editions of the British uh, magazine, The Economist, because some censor thought that something was going on there. Um, finally, you know, as, as, as the uh, scandals began to pile up, there began to be congressional hearings in the mid 50s after the Korean War and some cosmetic changes were made to the program, as well as an attempt to, you know, uh, seal this program as practiced in by legislation and therefore the ability to you know send you know to put it in the budget and finance it and uh, and monitor it but um, each time the uh, the legislation fell by the wayside they just weren't going to do it but they continued the program and it went all the way into the early 60s when in the beginning of the JFK administration 1961 early 1961 
um, the attorney general then, uh, by a guy by the name of Robert Kennedy, she said that, you know, ruled that uh, the old ruling in regards to this uh, doesn't stand and we're going to end the program of the uh, interdiction. But just as happens today, the, the opposition in Congress rallied itself and uh, it passed an amendment to uh, a defense bill, I believe it was, and uh, uh, called the Cunningham Amendment. And they finally got what they wanted, which was to put this program of censorship in the mails um, into uh, law. And it was passed and, and, and implemented and, and off it went again. Finally, though, that gave the opportunity to bring this practice uh, because now there was a law and you could appeal it. So you couldn't appeal something that had no real legal um, ground under it. There was no, you know, how do you go to court with this? So once there was a law, there was a challenge for the law and it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court threw it out in 1965. And that's when the program ended. Um, and by the way, I'm not talking about parallel programs, such as the CIA's opening of the mails or the FBI's opening of mails. You know, th this program specifically was not aimed at individual mail, like letters sent from somebody, you know, in you know, uh, Gdansk to you know somebody in Detroit. It had was specifically about interdicting books and pamphlets and film material that would depict life in the East, you know, Eastern Bloc countries or China or North Korea in a way uh, that wasn't controlled by the United States and uh, CIA and its, you know, captive media, which is pretty much all the media. And uh, so with what's happening around Ukraine again today, people are kind of surprised. It's, you know, that we need to know the history. And what's amazing, the other amazing thing that I discovered is that this history, like everything else around the Cold War, particularly the Korean War, is quote forgotten, right? You know, if you read articles about censorship, you won't read. Oh yeah, there were, by the way, the United States once had a program of censorship that destroyed tens of millions of pieces of mail, if not hundreds of million, over the totality of its existence. No, you wouldn't. I, I never heard of it. No one I know heard of it. It was known to the uh, to those who uh, who were in the know. <laughs> you know. But they didn't, it wasn't something that you talk about in the general public, right? The guy who wrote me the letter, he's written books about the germ warfare accusations. He never mentioned in a book what was done to suppress the documentary proof, you know, which was so difficult as he told me to obtain. Go ahead. It looks like you have a response or thoughts. Well, I was, <clears throat> I was thinking about the, the torture programs uh, post 9-11 and that even if you had someone through journalism or government leaks or whatever who could definitively prove an aspect, they were only proving one aspect of one program. And that having these parallel programs that if they did end up coming out, like you mentioned about, you know, it had nothing to do with the CIA's reading mail, nothing to do with the FBI, that, it, that our government doesn't just do one thing on a given issue and all the hands into it, but the um, but just the level of it, you know, the mass, I mean, for every American, I, I, I almost picture a, a group of soldiers in 1950s U.S. Army garb burning stuff, like burn pits in Iraq, you know, and I realize it's not, it, that probably wasn't the way it actually happened, but that's the, that's the image that comes to mind. Um, uh, I'm also, uh, one of the things you said that did not surprise me, although I was uplifted to hear it was, 
uh, the Kennedy administration's choices in in doing that, in saying that we're not we're not going to do this anymore, um, because that was that was at that time there was so many other changes that related to national security through the Kennedy administration. Not that JFK and his guys didn't make plenty of mistakes um, or, or poor choices. Um, I guess I, I my my other question about this would be about a. a from your point of view, a comparison of that kind of censorship, and you talked about it a little bit already, but that kind of censorship today that, you know, some of it is certainly through what we can access on the internet. You know, we know that internet providers walk hand in hand with the government on most things. And, you know, we're seeing that like on Facebook where, um, you know, I had a meme that I posted the other day and Facebook told me that they're fact checkers. Nope, sorry, it was missing context. Well, it was a meme. It wasn't supposed to have. It was. It was. I. I think it was supposed to be kind of funny, um, and and it, and it also said that you know that it was just uh, the image had come from a different time. They had ascribed it to what's happening now, and it was from earlier in the uh, earlier in the late two thousand tens in uh, in Ukraine. Um, but in terms of censorship of those kind of things today, um, how would you compare this program to? what you see uh, goes on day to day and specifically about uh, what's happening with Ukraine. Right. Well, with this program that occurred, which doesn't really have a name to give it, it's not like this was Operation X or whatever. It was just the coined as anything. It was just existed. Right. It just existed. It was what they did. And um, and because it, it, it never really gained a, a true historical discussion of this event you know oftentimes it will be a historian or a journalist who gives the name to you know like watergate for sure, sure. And the various events that were occurring in the, in the early 1970s late 1960s so there's really never been a name so um but th these things are done in secret we don't know what's being done now and of course the context is a bit different because the internet did change at least temporarily how um how, how information can be um, um, spread, you know, by anyone, by yourself. You've got a camera and a computer. You can sit down and do a, a podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can write an article and, and transmit it to however many people want to read it and put it on the Internet almost instantaneously. Of course, other countries have operated to limit that because, you know, along with the information, of course, is disinformation. You know, and quite, you know, famously, uh, the, the government of uh, China has criticized, you know, or North Korea for shutting off the, you know, um, the inter the outside world internet and only, only having an internet or intranet within that country, again, to protect from information or disinformation coming in. And the same thing happened with the mails earlier. Um, the United States had a program, speaking of Ukraine, and I wrote about this too, um, with the prologue. The name of it was the Prologue Publishing Company, which was run by a guy who was trained by the Gestapo as an assassin. Hmm. His name is Nicola Lebed, who has a had a CIA uh, cryptonym and was a member of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and, and uh, really a fascist who fled after World War II and came to the United States. And when they gave up after the CIA gave up trying to just parachute in Ukrainian nationalists into the and, and anti-Soviet personnel into Ukraine and the Soviet Union. Um, in a program uh, kind of been called since Operation Rollback, 
um, in the late 40s, very early 50s, when they realized that that insurgency in Ukraine would not work, where it was definitively defeated by the early, you know, 1952, let's say, um, they turned to penetration by the means of getting, you know, books, Samizdat literature, other things, trying to bypass the, the control over the inflow of information that was coming into Soviet Union or China um, by getting materials in there. So it's, you know, so it worked both ways, you know, uh, um, information flow is something that states use as a tool of, um, um, a tool of control of their own populations, propaganda for, you know, so that they can implement state aims with as little protest and with the other side, maybe not knowing what's going on as much as they can. Um, so information is really uh, part of warfare. And, um, and if politics is warfare by, uh, you know, during peacetime of other means or whatever that Clausewitz uh, famous quote is, then, you know, certainly we're seeing it uh, big time around Ukraine right now where the, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, disinformation out there. And of course, you mentioned, uh, I think, was it Facebook that, that they had this? And of course, you know, these places, Facebook and Twitter and others put up you know, some kind of police because they've been so, they've been criticized because there have been a relatively free flow of, of information and ostensibly, a, and certainly in fact, of disinformation as well. And you just don't have an educated populace who is taught or has learned to distinguish, you know, they just kind of are passive recipients of things. So this is, this is a tough issue and it was tough even back then, but, uh, the problem with going the censorship route is that you give censors um, who are often very stupid, very concrete people, way too much power. And there's no over, usually there's no oversight because these are secret programs as it was. Um, it wasn't secret per se, but it was uncontrolled. It was unsupervised. And, uh, um, and even when congressional uh, uh, committees were given the chance to, to, to rein in and, and Put it in law and begin to to control these enterprises. Uh, they they were not for reasons I don't know. I can only presume that there was pressure from the executive branch or the Pentagon against doing that. Um, you know they did not want. You know how I, I came by this, by the way. Of course, I was researching um, the biological warfare evidence, and I was reading many books or you know uh, secondary sources, as, as historians would call them. And they would re refer, you know, often to when they wanted to, to mention the evidence from the other side, they'd, they'd mention the International Scientific Committee report on investigating bacterial warfare headed by the British scientist Joseph Needham that went to China and North Korea in 1952. Or they would mention, you know, the uh, a couple dozen confessions that were published by China of U.S. pilots and navigators, et cetera, from the Air Force and Marine Corps admitting to use of biological warfare and describing how the program worked. So I thought, well, one should be able to look at, I, I innocently and so naively, I can't believe, I can't believe it that, well, sure, I, I'm sure I can find this in a bookstore or a library or I'll order it from Amazon or ABE books, or I'm sure that, that this is not hard to find. You know, um, and to, only to discover that um, when it came to the ISC report, there was only literally a handful spread across the country in a, in a few research libraries. And uh, um, when it came to the, this is in the United States, when it came to the, the publication of the pilots' confessions to germ warfare, 
Um, I couldn't find them at all in the United States. I had to go to Great Britain, not literally, but I had to communicate with people in Great Britain who could uh, you know, purchase a, a copy um, because in the United States it had been so totally destroyed. And even in the UK, it was, it was very difficult to find. Um, and I had to get it from uh, the Imperial War Museum. In fact, I ended up looking at Joseph Needham's own copy, which had been placed in the Imperial War Museum of the uh, pilots, uh, the airmen's confessions. And I've since then been trying to publicize them because they're among the most censored materials ever in the United States, ever. Um, uh, it's kind of shocking. Uh, so censorship, you know, so here we are at a moment where we live on the, the knife's edge of World War III. And we are, you know, you, you can bet we're not getting the information that we should get. We're getting a lot of spin. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that things still in the United States aren't being published. They are. I noticed that Gray Zone published just the other day an article about um, uh, uh, Zelensky's, you know, uh, history with the neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine, you know, and the political pressures he's under and his capitulations around that, you know, but you get a lot of, uh, you know, it's just swamped by the, uh, I published on the biological warfare you know, you've given me uh, some podcasts. There's been a few other people that have mentioned it, but it's totally swamped by the massive, you know, control of the mainstream press, um, which is tightly uh, monitored by the CIA and other perhaps governmental agencies. So this this program that that I brought that I that I've drawn attention to, I believe, is very important because we need to recapture the true history. Because you know it isn't unusual what's happening right now. This is not something that is out of you know out of the blue, and therefore uh, some kind of Putin-esque propaganda. This has actually been standard operating procedure in the United States more years than not um, through much of our history, and, and we need to understand what they're doing before you know just having this conversation makes you or me a foreign agent. You know we're not even though we are not in any contact with any foreign agency. You know, uh, at one point that came up in the congressional hearings. Well, what happens if Joe Blow travels to Moscow and he goes to a bookstore and then he decides to, he, he likes this pamphlet and decides to send five of them back, you know, to his friends in, uh, um, you know, back home in the United States. But, you know, he mails them, the, you know, the materials. Well, if they're, you know, if they were mailed as personal mail, first class, this was the answer, then he's in the clear. But should he use a book rate or send it under some kind of fourth class mail that he's importing these and he's acting as a foreign agent by doing so, even though he has zero connection to any you know, foreign entity. And that was the kind of thing that was happening. And of course it caused, as, as um, who pointed that out? Uh, um, I think it was uh, uh, the American Library Association representative to one of the congressional hearings in 1956 or so and said, you know, it's not, a, you know, I, I know you've made these cosmetic changes, but, you know, this whole program has caused a pall. People are afraid. They don't want, if I send, do something, I'm going to be labeled a foreign agent or my mail's going to be seized or, I, you know, because there were people, there were bookstores in the United States that were shut down as recipients supposedly acting as unregistered foreign agents because they received book materials from abroad and sold them. You know, uh, um, and again, as I said before, this spilled over into other things, scientific journals, art 
magazines, anything that would portray the, you know, the Soviet Union or life in the East positively was potentially a work of political propaganda. And as such, was seized and destroyed. I mean, literally, at one point they said it's true. We, they used so-called strong arm tactics. This is what they told Congress. Yeah, sometimes we've had to resort to strong arm, quote, that's a quote, tactics in, in, in uh, getting this mail and destroying it. I wish I knew more about what that meant and what, what went into it, but it's kind of scary that the government, you know, kind of admits acting like a, you know, some kind of Gestapo going in and seizing and, and brutalizing people perhaps to get the material to destroy it. it things were fairly dark in the, in, uh, in the, during the period of the Korean War uh, and uh, they're dark now. You, you get that same kind of feel, you know, let's ban Russian cats, you know, it's just insane. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> um, RT America getting well, RT period getting getting shut down. That it it, it um, even for Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight, who had a had a show on there that he would he would make a joke about that opening the show. Sometimes is that this is you know welcome to Redacted Tonight, where Americans in America talking about American news are called foreign agents. And, right. uh, you know, the little disclaimer on YouTube of, of un, under that, too, and that how can they how can they be so obtuse in in that way? You know, people people need to need to have a chance to know what's happening in their world. And I think it just it goes back to the um, to the nascent control of the American national security state and that most people mm -hmm. don't understand what it looks like when those kind of events come around um so uh the next thing we were going to talk about today was mm -hmm. your um work with torture victims right. and um um just want to get give um any anybody if it's you know the i i don't know exactly what dr k is gonna gonna share here but it might be a good time for a, a content warning of of some kind if uh so please, please be careful in that way, listening to this episode, because I'm sure there will be things attached to it that, that uh, will not be easy to hear. Um, but as usual for things we do here on Fortress on a Hill, that it's very important and we're going to talk about it and try to understand it a bit. Um, so Dr. K, you worked with torture victims um, as part of the asylum process, correct? Um, he, tell us a little bit about that and tell us about what spoke to you about working in this area before you began it. Okay. Um, by the way, I worked with uh, the torture victims through a, tor a local in the, in the San Francisco area, a local torture treatment center by the name of Survivors International, which okay. does not exist anymore as an independent entity. Um, it had been drawn into city services but lost, uh, you know, lost a, a lot of, uh, I, I'm not even sure if it still exists on, on, on that level anymore. But I, so not only did I work for them in the context of asylum, but I also uh, had referrals at times to work with uh, torture victims purely as a psychotherapist. And in fact, as a psychotherapist, even from early in my training, even as an intern at a city college in San Francisco for a while, for instance, um, and then later at Kaiser, um, as a postdoc, I ran across people who, in fact, uh, one of their presenting problems was having been tortured by a certain uh, state entity, um, a man from Egypt, um, a man from the uh, Central American country I don't want to identify, 
um, and uh, and others. A man from Poland, and uh, you know, torture. Most Americans might think, well, this is something that exists in the newspapers, or it's you know, it was at Guantanamo or secret CIA bases, but you know, or something maybe that happened, uh, you know, in, in barbaric countries. You know. Um, but uh, or enemy countries who would resort to torture, but not the United States, um, or not Great Britain, or not it's you know all of these things. But in fact, it turns out you know torture. Well, now everyone does know. Of course, the United States is well in, involved in torture, and um, although they may not understand the degree and depth to which the United States was committed to researching and implementing all sorts of quote scientific torture programs, uh, the CIA's complaint with um, foreign torturers was that they just weren't scientific enough. They didn't understand that if you beat a man senseless, you're not going to get him to uh, uh, give up information or cooperate, um, that there were much better uh, ways. Uh, they were entranced with uh, the findings of psychoanalysis and how human beings regress under stress um, and then could be controlled. They were interested in hypnosis. They were interested, of course, in drugs. And they were very interested in the effects of isolation and sensory deprivation upon uh, the human sensorium. I'm going to say that word more than once here, this human sensorium. By that, what I mean, by that, I mean, what you could think of as the, the total distributed um, nervous system throughout the human body, right? That includes two primary branches, the autonomic um, and the voluntary nervous systems. Autonomic sounds like automatic because that's what it is. It's kind of unconscious, you know, fight or flight trigger. Um, and it controls, but also controls, you know, how your organs operate internally. You know, when you have a stunt, when you're nervous and you notice you're, you, you suddenly have to go to the bathroom or your stomach hurts, I was, you know, under, that's the autonomic nervous system at work. Um, uh, of course, the voluntary nervous system is like, I'm going to lift my hand up and, and show you my pen. Well, anyway, there's a pen there. And um, that's a voluntary nervous system. And of course, our brain's thinking is a mixture of voluntary and involuntary processes. Anyway, I got involved because of a friend uh, solicited me and knew my interest, uh, perhaps in the, in the field. This was uh, uh, before the Iraq war and before the uh, um, the news in the very early 2000s uh, had really broke it was, um, about, um, it was about 2001, around the time of 9-11, but before I knew anything about US torture, in fact, before perhaps that had even been implemented. Um, but as time went by, uh, you know, anyway, you start to work with the torture victims and this, there is a, a version of my reaction to working with torture victims in my book, Cover Up at Guantanamo, where I discussed going to downtown San Francisco where um, there's a lockup uh, in a skyscraper there where people would be brought uh, in chains uh, if necessary to be interviewed by people like me on their asylum claim. And what, what, what does that mean? You know, I was a licensed psychologist and uh, licensed physicians and licensed psychologists and psychiatrists would often be hired by attorneys um, of asylum applicants to document um, their torture for presentation in court for their asylum case. These courts were the immigration courts run um, by the I uh, Immigration Service, later by the Department of Homeland Security. 
and you know, when you go to this course, like a regular courtroom, and when I testified, you know, there was the whole voir dire process, and there was the opposing counsels, and you know, the system totally is is under uh, uh, the asylum system in the United States, as in other countries, is under tremendous pressure. A lot, way, way more asylum applicants than they can handle. The cases back up for years. It's not unusual, you know, to be waiting, you know, seven, eight, ten years for your asylum case to be adjudicated, particularly if you appeal it. You know, so these things go on forever, and it's very helpful to have, uh, in fact, without an attorney and without, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing to document your case. It's very difficult sometimes if you have an unsympathetic judge or just an ignorant judge to uh, to press your case to. You know, and, and and there have been many people deported back to, you know, countries where uh, torture is endemic and run by the state, and, and uh, God knows what happens to these people. They disappear. You know, so it's very important. So life or death. So you asked me, what's my reaction? At first, I took it very seriously because I knew that the job I needed to do, you know, could have life or death consequences. And that's not something that always happens when you're just a psychologist, unless you're working with a very suicidal individual. So, um, you know, and there's, you know, there's a method to doing these evaluations. And in 1999, the uh, United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights um, gathered a bunch of people and they uh, wrote out procedures that would kind of standardize um, the evaluation of torture victims called the Istanbul Protocol. And, um, and it talked about the need and how to gather the information and how important it was to get detailed um, interviews with these people about what torture was used, how it was used, where it was used, who used it, exactly what happened. And then beyond that, their own response to what happened. What did you do then? What happened then? Where was it? So that, you know, remember, this is for a forensic setting. So I would do things when I was evaluating people for whom I was going to write a report very differently than I would say for a psychotherapy patient. I would have someone referred to me who had been tortured in some, you know, let's say African country or whatever, it could be anywhere. I shouldn't say that. I did. I saw people from around the world, almost every continent, except Australia, for whatever reason. I saw, you know, uh, uh, people from Russia, from China, but also from Guatemala, from El Salvador, from, uh, the, um, gosh, from the Philippines, from uh, India, from, you know, just all over the world um, um, who had uh, were making claims anyway of being tortured. Um, out of out of the maybe four dozen or so people I worked with and wrote reports on, um, there were only two that I determined were making it up or faking it. They were falsifying the reports. And um, what I would do in that instance, if I thought that was occurring, that their story was too fantastical, it didn't fit um, uh, this, the um, you know the what, what it, it didn't make sense. Um, then I would call the attorney and tell them. Uh, that this was the case, and usually they just withdrew from the evaluation. I don't know what happened to them afterwards. Um, it didn't mean that they didn't deserve asylum, but it did mean that they were, for whatever reasons, you know. But the vast majority of people, they had, um, that was not my experience. What would normally happen is I would go into a meeting and sit down with somebody, and, you know, my very first task was to make them feel safe. To make them, you know, because I'll tell you, the process of asking people all these questions starts to become extremely close in feeling to an interrogation, right? The difference 
being, um, sometimes the only difference being, one is I'm not hostile, and two, that um, it's for their benefit. You know, but you had to respect the kinds of fear that would come up you know, among these people and to realize that if you're trauma, because in trauma, you have to understand what trauma is. Um, and when a person, you know, the, the uh, effects of trauma are very insidious and counter to what is needed in a forensic setting because the trauma victim or PTSD, if you will, victim, the trauma response involves um, a set of, uh, of uh, situ a, a situation or a set of circumstances that is inimical, inimical to um, forensic examination. In other words, you need to tell me what happened, but by you telling me what happens is psychologically and physiologically triggers the trauma response. And that trauma response is fight or flight or shutdown. You know, and um, if, if any of your listeners could imagine the most terrible thing that ever happened to them, to them in their life. And, um, and then someone comes along and says, now you've got to tell me everything about that in detail. And we're going to be talking about that straight for one, two, three, five hours. And I'm going to ask you all sorts of questions. Um, it's, it's, it, that's extremely difficult and painful for anyone. And if you've been highly traumatized, it, it becomes almost next to impossible. Um, so you need to you know, get that information because when you go into court behind some bureaucratic judge or whatever, they don't know, you know they're doing a job. And uh, if they don't have the evidence to back up the claim, they're not going to give them, you know, it has to be a well-founded, credible claim of persecution. If you can't, you know, torture doesn't happen out usually in the open. There's usually not a videotape, as there were videotapes of Abu Zubaydah that were destroyed. And even those were destroyed. You know, it's not like there's usually some kind of um, indisputable evidence of the torture. Uh, medical torture, oftentimes there is really good, almost indisputable evidence of, you know, marks on the wrists, scars, things like that, that, that you can be attributed to torture. Um, but psychological, you know, so much that happens in torture is psychological. Uh, take Abu Zubaydah, who I think we were talking about earlier, who was at Guantanamo, was the, the CIA's first kind of model for their, their torture program they wanted to implement post 9-11. Um, almost everything that happened to them was meant not to leave a mark. Even the physical aspects of the torture, such like a slap on the face, was just that, a slap on the face. Um, you know, so it would be very difficult to physically show that there was torture. You could show maltreatment in the sense of weight loss. You could show, uh, you know, various other things, but uh, uh, those could just be considered side effects. You know, the, the legalities of proving torture I mean you have to prove intent to torture, which is arguably uh, not the way to do it, but that's just how it is. And um, so I'd go into these interviews and you know, have to put people, make them feel safe, and slowly but surely bring them along to tell the whole story so we could document it. And I would be documenting their response to it as well. But oftentimes my, um, physio, you know, if you're a, a, the person who's sitting across the room, you know, a room, you know, with a torture victim, and you begin, and they implement their defenses against being re-traumatized, which is what's happening. 
you're an authority, I'm an authority figure. I'm working, I'm going to present this to a court in the United States. You know, uh, most of all of these people, in fact, were not Americans. They were from other foreign countries coming here for asylum. And uh, they had less trust with the United States you know, government than your average Trump supporter today. <laughs> and they, um, you know, they were very well aware that the United States government couldn't be trusted, but they had no real, you know, uh, no real options. They, you know, oftentimes they just, especially those coming up from Latin America, they were escaping death squads or gangs or, you know, terrific, horrific uh, domestic abuse, um, all sorts of things like that. And, uh, um, you know, they came here because it wasn't there and they needed to, you know, they needed safety. But uh, oftentimes the response, you know, the feeling I'd get was one of massive resistance and it would make me internally feel angry or frustrated. You know, how this person, I'm here to help you and you're frustrating me helping you. So part of the training, of course, is to understand how these feelings, which in therapy are called countertransference, or whatever you want to call them, that are that are um, um, called up in the evaluator or the treater um, um, can be handled so you don't act out or falsely accuse or, or, or sabotage the evaluation just out of frustration and, and animus towards the, the, the person who's causing you so many troubles. You know, I'm just a guy who came to work like anybody else and you're making me feel terrible. So I'm not gonna help you I mean, unconsciously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of that would go on. I, in talking about this, by the way, I want to make one thing to your listeners. I mean, not only, of course, can some of the material bring up uh, problematic uh, uh, feelings in the listener, but you know, as the person who's talking about this, I, I can't really talk in detail about any of these cases because of confidentiality. So that makes it difficult. Um, there was, you know, even when there was a when some of the cases went into the public record, as in the case of a of a woman from a, a Southeast Asian country that I um, evaluated, um, which uh, may, uh, sadly got publicized in the local press in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be, out of respect for this person and fear that they would hear about it or know about it or be re-traumatized, I'm, I'm kind of prevented from talking much about it. But so I have to sometimes, if I'm talking sometimes in vague generalities or it sounds like I'm not getting as detailed as, people might want to hear, they have to understand that I'm trying to still protect, even though it's been years now since I've worked with torture victims. I, I did that mostly from around 2001 to about 2010, um, uh, a little bit after, um, um, that I, I wouldn't uh, uh, go into said the details that people might want to hear. Um, but uh, there are also, you know, there are books by torture victims uh, that can be read. There are books about torture. You know, it's not a subject people usually want to hear. In fact, I would say, I wouldn't be shocked to hear that if this is how you publicize this podcast, it will be one of your least popular podcasts. Why is that? Because torture, and this is a, I've talked to other people working on, on torture in the public and writing about the Guantanamo or the CIA program. People don't want to hear about it. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. You know, um, it's uncomfortable for me to sit and listen to somebody talk about how, you know, they were suspended from a ceiling or how they were you know, subjected to beatings in prison or how, um, you know, they were they were raped repeatedly or whatever. Uh, you know, it's not it's not easy to listen to it. It's not easy to sit and listen to it 
even for a listener who's listening in on something. Well, everybody has a set of defenses to protect themselves from painful material in the world, whether, you know, um, and uh, one of the main defenses is just to shut things off, to, in psychological sense, disassociate or repress is another function, um, this material. And in fact, the repression of, of troublesome truths about our country, about our history, is one of the primary facts of what, you know, if you want to understand how it is that people are gold and go along with these things. Uh, um, you know, the ignorance that comes from, you know, uh, um, not attending to important information. And the reason you don't attend to it in part is because it's too painful to attend to it. Um, so that's kind of a background for what I'm, I'm talking about some of the approach and the difficulties of talking about this. I hope I'm wrong, by the way, if lots of people listen to this and become activated to do something or write about it or read more and learn more. But, but uh, sad to say, experience has shown me that so far, at least, um, that's not the typical response of the person out there. But for those of you who are still listening to what Henri and I are talking about, I commend you and I hope that you can share this with other people. We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One very powerful way is to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review. iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortress on a Hill Facebook page and look for the reviews tab. And finally, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping us for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 or more a month will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Caron, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds. Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Korgoth, Rick Coffey, and the Status Quo Podcast. You are all the engine that helps us power the podcast. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me slash fortress on a hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great fortress merch. There's t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. And now let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, Fort Fortress on a Hill listeners are, are are definitely tough that way. They have to be. Um, could you give us a, a some insight into the common areas that torture victims share in their recovery? Um, how how does torture um, 
in the long term change the psyche and affect perceptions of life? Well, I'm very sad to say that it often just is basically it destroys the psyche. It's what it's meant to do. And as a result, some people just don't really recover um, in, a, in a functional sense. They might still be alive, but their lives essentially are destroyed. Their ability to have relationships with other people um, is, is seriously impaired. Um, their uh, autonomic nervous system is on trigger alert so that everything uh, affects them. The uh, traffic noise outside sets it off and their heart is beating and racing. They can't go to work. They can't concentrate. Um, in psychotherapy with these people, and I would like to believe in the way in which I handled evaluations as well, you make a kind of, you, know, you make a relationship with these people and your contact with them becomes a new model that shows them that there is hope, there is an ability to connect with another human being. Because torture is a profound assault, as I mentioned on the sensorium, um, in the sense that the body and the mind, which are artificially divided when people talk about this, even, even when people talk about psychological torture versus physiological torture, that's a, an artificial distinction. There is no psychological torture without physical torture. Nothing mutually exclusive about the situation at all, is there? Right. And there's no physical torture that isn't psychological torture. You know, the divisions are simply meant to, um, to distinguish a more brutal, visceral, physically based torture from a torture that supposedly is, quote, touchless, you know. Um, so, you know, leaving a person in a room that has lights on 24-7 and uh, has pounding loud music, right, um, is torture, even though nobody even lays a hand on the person except to put them in the cell. Um, because, again, it's an attack on the sensorium and sensory overwhelm or sensory other times sensory deprivation or even switching between the two is meant to throw your whole system askew and it does and these and because of the conservative nature of the nervous system meaning that the nervous system is meant you know uh, learns or adapts uh, to or responds to stimuli from the outside world um, and it learns from that stimuli you know, um, and it wants to, and that's a surviving, not just human beings, but, but almost all creatures, even from the tiniest amoeba, um, um, who has, you know, irritable sensibility, um, you know, remembers that if you poke it with a, a needle, it kind of remembers that it got poked by the needle. Darwin, way, you know, Charles Darwin's last book was on earthworms, and it's actually the most fascinating section is on the behavior of earthworms, who he could just, who he was surprised to see could learn and remember, you know, obstacles, so they would, you know, remember to go around them. So, so the nervous system, even in an organism as primitive as a worm, is set up to learn from its environment. Um, it's how it evolved to learn from its environment, so it could survive. But that saying, you know, to learn means a, a change occurs in the nervous nerves themselves, in the synapses between one nerve and another. Changes occur that are meant to be permanent or semi-permanent to last a long time, so that you can remember and you know learn that learn your world. But is it, but what that means when when bad stimuli floods you, it learns um, that um, the world can't be controlled. It learns that the world is a, uh, nothing but threat. 
right? So one of the things I learned working with torture victims, how important it was, if possible, to establish a sense of connection with another human being and hopefully with the society, some, some place of the, some people in the society in which they, they live. Because it, you asked, well, what happens to, the, what do these people have in common? And one thing they, these torture victims have in common is a sense of total isolation from other people. Their experience is so different that they cannot connect with the culture around them. And the culture around them doesn't recognize them. It, it doesn't make a place for them. You know, I live in the Bay Area. Every year it killed me where they would have um, Fleet Week. Mm-hmm. Those of you from San Francisco Bay Area probably are familiar with Fleet Week, in which the uh, Blue Angels, are, um, I think it was the Blue Angels. Anyway, yeah, they would have these um, aer- aerial uh, shows with jets flying over the city doing all sorts of amazing aerial things that people love to see, some people, but not traumatized people. It would set them off like you couldn't believe. And uh, and you, but uh, the Navy wasn't going to stop doing its fleet week or aerial demonstrations right over the city, you know, with sonic, you know, if it wasn't sonic booms, it was just really loud jets flying extremely low in the sky, and very loud and um, and very frightening to people who had been tortured. You know, the torture victims are all around us. You know, there are torture treatment centers all around the country and all around the world. And people don't realize it because it's kept secret. People don't go on talk shows and say, well, let me tell you about how I was tortured um, by this government or that government, you know, uh, because one, it wouldn't get the ratings maybe, as I was saying, or two, you know, a lot of these governments, of course, are in alliance with the United States. They're allies of the United States, and therefore, uh, it's politically uh, um, inappropriate, or not inappropriate. It's not the right word. It's politically blanking uh, um, on the word uh, that I want. Anyway, it's politically uh, unfortunate uh, that they that they should come from such countries because uh, they're not going to get a hearing. No, it's just not something. Oprah, when's the last time Oprah had a program on torture? I don't think she ever has. So, you know, uh, not that I hold Oprah personally responsible for the problems in this country around the torture, but I'm just using it as an example. When torture victims are um, interrogated, um, they often lie at one point or another to attempt to end the torture, you know, b- believing that that, uh, that that may stop whatever's happening to them. How does um, torture affect a person's ability to answer basic questions, to access their own memories, or even to communicate simple basic needs? Right. Well, um, torture, when, you know, the CIA investigators are very interested in this question because uh, they believed, or at least um, they put out the propaganda that uh, certain confessions that were happening in East Europe of collaboration with American security forces in places like Hungary, um, East Europe in general, or um, and then later during the Korean War, um, were uh, coerced. They were tortured. People had been tortured into false confessions. And in fact, if, if um, many, uh, as, you, as you point out, it is true that if you 
coerce a person and bring them to um, a place of great pain and uh, fear, you know, a person might admit to anything. I, I myself have felt, yeah, if they tortured me, I'm sure I would just tell them whatever they wanted to hear. You know, I'm, uh, but um, the reality is that the encounter between an interrogator or a torturer and his victim or subject is um, unique to that encounter. So there, you know, there's a whole spectrum of different responses and there's a whole spectrum of information that that person may have or not have. And there's a spectrum of different layers of torture that can happen. It's extreme. You know, the torture can produce what um, one CIA researcher in the early 50s called an organic brain syndrome, meaning that the person is so debilitated, so traumatized, so in so much pain that they, even if they had the information that you wanted, they, they weren't capable of giving it. Or they, um, you know, you would just kind of, you know, um, it's like an episode of 24 where, you know, they were torturing someone and you, you tortured them so much they went unconscious. Well, an unconscious person is not going to provide you anything. No. So they, they, you know, they want to keep people conscious if they can. But then there's also what is the intent of the torturer, finally, to, to, to put another layer of complexity on, on the actual torture and tortured victim encounter. What are they trying? What is the intent of the torturer? Are they actually trying to get information? Or are they trying to elicit a false confession? Or are they trying to elicit cooperation so that later that person can be used in propaganda for a show trial? Or do they just want to inflict pain out of sadistic pleasure? Or, you know, um, you know, or do they sincerely believe that there's a ticking time clock and they've got to get this information from a person? You know, one thing that seems to be true and, and comes up in studies about interrogation in general, and this certainly came up uh, one of the critiques of the modern method often used by police departments in this country, the so-called read technique, R-E-I-D, is that it makes an assumption. The assumption is the person is guilty or has that information to begin with, right? So you've already determined that the person has, let's say, the information about X that you want. So no matter what that person says, if it's not X, you know, then uh, they're lying, you know, and some kind of pressure or trick or some technique is used upon them, or time um, to to get that information. But what? You know, and then there's the person. They might have that information, or they might not. They might be totally innocent, innocent in the sense of not having that information. You know, what are they going to do? So the, it's it's a very it's actually a much more complex question than than whether or not torture only elicits false confessions, which is usually what you read by opponents to torture in the press. Um, and, and the people who say that are very honest and they're very uh, uh, dedicated people, I believe oftentimes, and they're very sincere and they're anti-torture, I get it. But you know, my first encounter with a torture victim was as, as I said, was as an intern at a, in a, a city college of San Francisco. And the individual um, was um, from, as I say, from a Central American country and this individual had been tortured there. This was the presenting problem, as they call it, in psychotherapy. Why is the person there? The person is there because they're haunted by the fact that when they were tortured, they in fact gave up information that may have in fact led to other people being tortured or killed. And that was a tremendous burden of guilt for that individual. Um, so what am I to think? My own experience tells me that torture can bring about confessions 
of material. And anyone who's read about the Gestapo or read about the Savak or everything knows that both um, valid information and invalid information is provided by people who are tortured. There's often a mixture of them too, because in studying the uh, confessions of the uh, the Air Force uh, flyers who um, and Marine Corps who, who confessed to uh, germ warfare, uh, on one hand you have uh, the Chinese saying, you know, we were uh, we were uh, very uh, humane, and the stories of torture are totally false, and then on the other hand, you have the United States saying these people were horrifically tortured and subjected to brainwashing, you know, insidious brainwashing uh, done by the Chinese or the North Koreans. You know, but if you look at the material and you you, you actually do a kind of forensic examination of it, when when was you know uh, who was this person? When was the when was the when did the interrogation take place? How long did it take to get the information? What did they say afterwards? If if we have that data for for a small subset we do, um, that, uh, that you actually have a spectrum of different responses, not surprising. But one thing that was indicative to me and, and to some other people who've looked at these uh, confessions since is that the, including the CIA in their own evaluation of the material when they saw it, what's striking is that the person who gives the confession only confesses to aspects of um, the germ warfare program in Korea that they had knowledge of, or could have had knowledge of based on their position in the military hierarchy and what their job was, right? So if you were a navigator, um, you didn't have as much information as say a pilot usually had. And the pilots didn't have the information of the high ranking officers, you know, uh, like the Colonel Mahurin or Colonel um, Schwabel who were shot down and captured had about you know, who was in charge at the level of the Pentagon or the, or the military hierarchy. And then if you were the ordnance officer, like Roy Blay was, you know, he had knowledge of where the weapons were kept. Nobody else confessed to, yeah, here's here's exactly how we got, you know, you know the, the, the war, you know, the germ warfare material from, you know, point A to point B, here's where it was stored. No, he knew about it. So these weren't just blanket, you know, confessions about germ warfare. They were detailed based on the person's response. And some of these people, I believe, based on uh, a number of different factors, it's hard to go into, but um, some of those people uh, felt uh, uh, on, quite honestly disturbed about the use of germ warfare. And they quite freely spoke to the Chinese, you know, or their North Korean captors about it and were, were kind of, you know, really disturbed by what had occurred. Others uh, were resistant. Um, and in fact, we're subjected to isolation, you know, maybe some forms of, of brutality, um, but uh, forced standing positions or forced positions rather was another thing used. No, you didn't have people sticking bamboo under fingernails and, you know, you didn't, they weren't uh, uh, um, doing like what they did to Abu Zubaydah, by the way, which was to uh, uh, withhold treatment or threaten to withhold treatment for, you know, battle wounds unless they talk, that's something they did to Abu Zubaydah, something that the FBI did to Abu Zubaydah, by the way, not just the CIA. Um, I know perhaps you wanted to talk about Abu Zubaydah, maybe I'm veering off here, but uh, in the recent film about, uh, which in many ways is very good about uh, the uh, interrogation and torture of Abu Zubaydah, um, most of the critique comes via um, uh, 
eyewitnesses were FBI, but at the same time, they whitewashed their own participation in the torture, so thereby uh, making the film a mixed bag. And our understanding, even today, uh, to, um, oftentimes it's very little known to the degree in which the FBI participated uh, in the CIA torture program. But anyway, I veered off there from what you, perhaps you were, you were asking. Well, we can, uh, I, I, uh, that might be a good way to, to wrap up today to talk about, about Abu Zubaydah a little bit. Um, that um, as, of, as of today, that the Supreme Court ruled that he, um, that the DOJ blocking his ability to testify in uh, a case for Polish prosecutors about his own torture has said that it, it the state secrets privilege uh, applies, that they can't. That, that well, not just him. He can't. They can't get. Uh, they wanted to subpoena uh, Mitchell and Jessen. Yes. Yeah. To they testify they, about what they did in Poland. Yeah, right. Yeah. The the but they're not able to. You know, Mitchell and Jessen won't testify. Obviously, Zubeda, his testimony won't be included. Um, yeah. I feel I I feel uh, I feel grateful to the European Court of Human Rights that they were willing to take this case and to to give it the media exposure that it is uh, that it has got. Um, now in terms of, of what happened to him, I know he was waterboarded a, a huge number of times, um, position, uh, positional torture, sleep deprivation, light and sensory overload. Um, what, what is his, or I, I this is of course an impression cause we don't, we don't know a hundred percent or have the right info, but. What would you say um, you've gleaned from him in terms of, of reading about him that at this point in his life, after all the torture he went through, after being in Gitmo for a huge, a huge number of years and um, potentially probably for the rest of his life, given what's happening with the other Gitmo prisoners, um, that... I don't know. Sorry, I'm getting I'm getting a little too abstract here, but I'm I'm just thinking about that the mm -hmm. the um it's amazing to me that after all that he has suffered, he has been able to to testify to you know talk about the things that has happened to him had as a has a great willingness to talk about them, and I'm sure it's very hard even mm -hmm. with that willingness. Um, what what has been your impression of that? of of uh of his you know where he is today in terms of of his health and um just gen in general what happened to him right well in terms of, of how he's doing today i i of course can't know precisely i can't evaluate him nobody really can his attorneys um uh, and those who you know who have been allowed by the courts or by you know military commissions to process him or the Gitmo authorities you know, I'm going to process him, excuse me, to evaluate him, saying, you know, of course, he's very damaged. Uh, you know, Abu Zubayda is a very uh, psychologically damaged, and he has a lot of pain from the torture. He has, uh, you know, it's important to remember that Abu Zubaydah was a uh, brain trauma victim, you know, from an accident uh, prior to 9-11 uh, uh, and all of that. A very intelligent individual um, who was able to, in, to figure out that he was being experimented on. He realized that they, you know, he listened to what the torturers were saying and he could see what was happening. And he knew that he was part of an experiment in torture. So that's how intelligent he is. 
but um, you know, he has he suffers from, according to his attorney, you know, still the ongoing powerful, you know, I wouldn't say constant, maybe near constant. I don't know the exact uh, how often, but uh, seizures that he has that were exacerbated from his torture treatment, coming probably from the head trauma. Um, uh, I, in fact, I find it very interesting as an aside that a number of the primary torture victims, or certainly the two key cases, Abu Zubaydah for um, uh, the CIA and um, um, Muhammad al-Qatari for the Pentagon, who was of course tortured at Guantanamo and was recently said he's going to be released, I guess, back to Saudi Arabia finally. He was the one where the uh, Susan Crawford, the, mil- the convening authority for the military com- uh, commissions, about ten years ago now, said, "Well, you know, we can't we can't prosecute Abu Zubaydah and the military commissions because we have to admit that he was tortured." And uh, I mean, this was the chief legal person from the U.S. government to the Guantanamo military commissions, admitting publicly that the U.S. tortured Abu Zubaydah. That was a huge admission at the time, and. Um, and saying that the information, therefore, we got from him can't be used in court. So we can never prosecute him, but we're not going to let him go. In fact, that's what they didn't want to do from the get-go. There's a, the, the CIA was promised Abu Zubaydah would never see anything outside of a prison, government, U.S. government prison ever again, because they're trying to hide what they did. Um, but anyway, he was, he like, in the other people who I've heard about who were from Guantanamo, uh, uh, many of them, uh, particularly, uh, uh, anyway, I, I don't want to say more, but uh, those who were released to other countries, you know, I have been able to talk to a few people who were involved or knowledgeable about the treatment of those individuals and their mental state, and uh, they are highly damaged individuals. Um, you rarely see cases. Um, an exception, uh, uh, one exception that comes to mind, of course, is uh, um, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 the guy who runs Cage, Cage Prisoners in the UK. Um, uh, this is this is terrible. This is old age where, where I start losing too many names in my head. They'll probably pop into my head in, in a minute. Anyway, uh, who have been able to function and and you know and, and do something politically? Some people, uh, you know, one finding about torture and uh, trauma is that if you can get people involved in meaningful activities that are personally meaningful to them and engage them with another uh, group of people in which what they do in life has meaning, it's restorative to uh, the process of, of overcoming the, tra- the torture and the trauma, right? It maybe never totally goes away, sad to say, but you can get by so, a subset of individuals who aren't destroyed and you know can get by and pro- not prosper but 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 have a meaningful life although sometimes you know i don't know what you know years later what happens there was a you know famous cases of concentration camp victims like primo levy who you know came back from the concentration camp experience which of course was pure torture and um you know lived to write about it to be active and very important people in the communities who then committed suicide one day because, you know, they were just carrying around too much poison in their head. Um, I mean, torture is, is um, unique in the law in that it's, you know, it's a universally seen as, as a war crime, universally seen as a crime against humanity. 
And, um, you know, the United States is signatory to a treaty that says you, we are supposed to punish people for torture. We're supposed to seek it out and prosecute that, and we're supposed to uh, uh, prevent that from happening. But the United States does the opposite. In the recent Supreme Court case, they denied Abu Zubaydah uh, his human his 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 political human rights and being able to proceed legally against his torturers via a process known as discovery, which is you know you can't have a trial unless you can you know, use the court to gain documents and information and produce testimony that backs your case. If you can't do that, you cannot have a case. So what they're saying is what the Supreme Court of the United States said is that the uh, Abu Zubaydah cannot confront his torturers who, you know, who were run by the CIA. But for that matter, frankly, there were others. The FBI was involved as well. And, and then later the DOD at Guantanamo to some degree. It's unknown exactly the parameters of what DOD did with him, but he has been at Guantanamo since 2006 in a special, perhaps CIA facility, but nevertheless, um, DOD becomes implicated as well. With that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty awful. So this is the freedom and this is the, the golden city on a hill uh, being presented uh, supposedly to those in East Europe who were told that you know they're fighting for freedom. This is the freedom that you have is, uh, they say, well, this is just one guy. But actually, if you read the newspapers, you know that torture happens in police stations across America. And it's very difficult to, even in cases that are extremely well-documented, to get justice. And it certainly has been difficult to stop after decades of exposure, the ongoing use of this, of this kind of, 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 uh, of uh, violence against against uh, human beings that's that's taking place so it's a, it's a it's so much that we end up talking about over here it's kind of disheartening uh, on you know to say the least that uh, the, these kinds of crimes this kind of inhumanity is so pervasive you know um, and it's so difficult to get this out in the mainstream media um, um, and it's not that it's just people like me, but there are organizations that are well-funded like Physicians for Human Rights or uh, the Center for Victims of Torture and others that, uh, um, you know, that try to get this kind of information out, but it rarely, it rarely goes far. I, I of course, for, for years have been pushing the fact that uh, the United States government under the auspices of uh, its Army Field Manual on Interrogation, which is it was written in by the Democrats um, who, were, who were using it against the CIA torture program. So, but we're gonna get rid of the waterboarding and we're gonna use these, new, these, these great techniques that are in our army field manual, except guess what? They were torture too. It involved use of isolation, sensory deprivation, you know, um, use of drugs and all sorts of stuff on people. In fact, and, and I did my best along with uh, Jason Leopold at the time who fought the FOIA on, on an inspector general report on the use of drugs against Guantanamo prisoners. You know, uh, Abu Zubaydah himself mentions at times having been drugged, you know, but it's, uh, uh, we still don't know to this day what exactly, you know, to the extent of, of, of that, how it, it hit him. Oh, I'm sorry, you know what I went off? I meant to tell you. So, so uh, Al-Qahtani and Abu Zubaydah were head trauma victims. Al-Qahtani too had been in an automobile accident. And had been severely traumatized as a kid and had seizure problems and was even uh, considered to be schizophrenic or psychotic um, for, you know, thereafter. And yet, so the, here you have two 
the two key cases um, in which they, the, the Department of Defense and the CIA were um, fine-tuning, if you will, their new torture paradigm were being done on head trauma cases. Um, for those who follow, and there aren't that many people who have followed the, C, you know, the, 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 the research CIA did during MK Ultra, you know, MK Search, and you know, uh, Project Artichoke on, um, um, on, on this kind of torture style of interrogation, that they, you know, one thing that, that flummoxed them is that you know, the, they didn't have the data on what to do with uh, head trauma victims. They didn't know to the extent to which if you took somebody who had, had uh, already had existing neurological problems and subjected them to the kind of torture you wanted to do, they didn't know what would happen. I believe they finally got a chance to find that out. And that's part of what was going on, just part. There were a number of experiments going on because they had a number of questions that they wanted to answer to themselves. Um, and uh, the fact that we're still out here applying for information on the outside and that the Supreme Court of the United States, including its um, all but one of its liberal members voting on the Supreme Court, oddly enough, the only two people who opposed uh, this latest uh, shutdown of uh, uh, the right of Abu Zubaydah to confront his torturers and get more information and proceed in court were uh, um, Sotomayor, not surprising, maybe not surprisingly, but the other one was quite a surprise, Neil Gorsuch, one of the most conservative members on the court, who um, was quoted as saying, you know, sometimes a judge uh, just uh, has to go by what they see in the world and not on some legalistic you know, some legalistic ploy. Uh, and uh, um, oddly enough, for whatever reason, this case touched him and he you know, felt that this should go forward. But of course he was in a minority of two and the Supreme Court and, that, and, and now once again, I don't know, what is this, 2022, 20 years after the implementation of the CIA's enhanced interrogation program, you know, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States is blocking Americans from finding out what really happened and from getting, allowing the victim of that torture to get justice. It's pretty shocking and terrible. If you mix it in with the other things we've been saying about censorship and all of that, uh, uh, what we really have is a fairly dark view of our country. And it's not things have not been getting better, they've been getting worse. And in the war fever atmosphere we live in now, uh, I don't see anything getting better, at least in the immediate future, perhaps later, when people wake up. Um, in reading, uh, it was a judge by, or excuse me, an article by um, Judge Andrew Napolitano at uh, antiwar.com, and he was talking about how the in the original case in the original um, ruling that came down with state secrets that once they had gone through the adjudication process and came out the other side that publicly they had no justification for it um, and then moved to today moved to the arguments in October of the Supreme Court and the lawyer for the government tried to use the war in Afghanistan as the justification for it with the war having ended officially six, seven weeks prior to that. Our classification system needs to be revamped. It needs to be changed in the, and, and 
that's I, I think that's one of the the biggest obstacles to people like you, people like me, and, and moving forward, like you've talked about with your work, it's about finding the information. Mm -hmm. It's not that, that it, it can't be accessed, but so much has been done to hide it, to obfuscate it, to even if it comes out, to make the people who say it sound like liars mm -hmm. and and, and uh, maybe even maybe even terrorists. But um, I oh go ahead, Doc. Sorry. There was yeah. In terms of how the censorship, how pervasive and ongoing this uh, censorship is, or the in my pursuit of more documentation to uh, on the issue of the biological warfare during the Korean War. I came across the fact that in uh, 1952, 53, it was 1953, the Pentagon's Weapons System Evaluation Group, which was an official entity um, attached to the Joint Chiefs of Staff that, offered, that reported to the Joint Chiefs of Staff on weapon systems, um, who do you know looked at the efficacy, for instance, of uh, weapon submarine weapon, you know, nuclear weapon systems that were being proposed back in the early 50s, et cetera. You know, this was an important uh, consultative group to the Pentagon, wrote a report on uh, the biological weapons, um, uh, their, their evaluation of, of the state of biological weapons in 1953. That report is, was classified and it was, it came up in 19, excuse me, 19, in 2018, again, hmm. at the national, where the, the report is held at the National Archives in Maryland and um, College Park, Maryland. And the report was, again, reclassified as secret, not releasable. Um, I'm going to try and challenge that. Uh, the, pand you know, the pandemic has kind of shut down a lot of National Archives uh, activities, unfortunately, lately, but uh, hopefully that will lift very soon. And uh, I'm going to try and, and do a, a mandatory declassification of that document to see if we can get something from it because I believe, of course, in it, we will see some of those weapons, or, or at least an aversion, adversion to the uh, to the existence of, of some of these weapons that were used in Korea, and in um, a discussion about them. I could be wrong, right? But why is this report still classified after seventy years, almost seventy six to nine years? Um, it, it's mind boggling, and so it's not just what happened to Abu Zubaydah in 2002. It's not just, you know, what, you know, um, keeping RT from publishing, you know, or opening mails. I mean, th this this thing goes back to, you know, primary documents that are withheld. And I'm told by the people who research this, and I, I, I do not research World War II that much, but there's plenty of material even stolen from World War II that they won't declassify. So this is how difficult it is. And now, you know, um, and of course, I'm hoping what your listeners learned from today was that some of the problem isn't just declassification, but that a great deal of material was destroyed during the Cold War and is not anymore available to us. Or if it is, one will have to search literally the world to find some of this material. Or maybe when the archives are opened up, perhaps fully from places like China um, or even parts of, of the former Soviet Union and Russia, they've opened a lot of archives, but there's a lot of material that's not available. Still, and um, and of course the American archives, which still keep classified essential documents to help us understand. People are aware of the JFK documents and how some of them are still, you know, withheld and controversies around that. But it's much bigger than that, and so this goes back even decades before the assassination of JFK. So that's the status of our 
of uh, our democracy right now. It's all, all of it very much a part of American national security DNA. That this is, you know, that these these are things that roll into future conflicts. They don't, you know, there's there's very seldom is there a one and done strategy, um, because they're always planning for the next war. You know that that's yeah. what that's what the DoD does is they any efficiency or changes to their stuff is about making the next war good. Sometimes you'll see journalists or commentators want to make it seem like, oh hey look at this it, they released this one thing. But that that doesn't look at the whole glacier under the water that shows us what they really haven't released, and some of which they probably never will. Right. Um, I think that's a good place for us to to wrap up for today, Doc. Okay. Um, okay. I uh, I really appreciate you coming to talk with us, share with us your your experiences and mm -hmm. uh, the experiences of some of the people that you've uh, you've evaluated. Um, I hope that you'll uh, you'll come back again. Mm -hmm. um, I know we were talking yeah. about uh, talking about the the read more about the read technique, about how it was uh, developed and brought in uh, for people that don't know or if I I know I've mentioned it a little bit before, but that's a technique used by almost a great majority of the police departments in America. And like uh, Dr. K mentioned, that it is uh, it's designed to work as though they already believe in the guilt of the person that they're talking to, that it's, it's not about establishing guilt. It's about confirming guilt, um, which, which flies in the face of, of trying to do things in an open nature that actually acknowledges the truth. Mm -hmm. So, um, thanks again, doc. And, uh, we will, uh, we will have you back again soon. To talk more about this stuff. Okay. Sounds very good. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes. skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you and listen to my song I hope you'll pay attention I will not 